Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, what uh, what he's doing is uh, remarkable, you know, and his journey is quite inspiring. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, combining software, hardware, uh, building a team that is remote, and then also fundraising, how to go about it, where to raise it from, all of that good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Tyler Duval, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Excited to be on. So originally born in D.C., in Washington, but raised in Maryland. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Memory lane. Pretty, you know, standard issue, uh, suburban, uh, you know, childhood. Uh, you know, father, uh, my father was a lawyer. My mom was a school teacher. My grandfather was a lawyer. So kind of a quintessential Washington, D.C. area experience. Uh, grew up kind of observing everything that's functional and dysfunctional about the Washington, D.C. area, including its traffic problems. Um, and, you know, went, went to college to, to play sports and then went to law school and thought I'd just do the normal career track for a suburban kid from D.C. and, you know, be a lawyer. But re- pretty quickly decided that that was not what I wanted to do and uh, made some big career changes along the way. And we'll talk about that. Now, in your case, you played basketball in college, so you were quite a competitive guy. I'm sure that, that has served you well as an entrepreneur, too. Very competitive. Uh, you know, painfully competitive. It, it, it causes me problems sometimes how competitive I am, but I, I do love competing. So That's amazing. So so in your case, you know, obviously you had to at least, you know, showcase to the family that you were capable of also becoming a lawyer. So uh, you went ahead, you studied law, you met your wife, you know, uh, during law school. But then eventually you moved to D.C. and you started practicing law at a really uh, prominent law firm called Hogan Lovells. Uh, and there you were doing mainly corporate uh, type of stuff and transactions. I guess, you know, during those, let's say, almost four years that you were there, I'm sure that you learned quite a bit on what works and what doesn't when it comes to deal making. So what did you learn about that? Yeah, exactly. You know, it was, it was great. It was a great way to kind of cut your teeth on the world of transactions uh, and securities law and just, you know, call it the underbelly of how stuff gets done uh, around the world, but certainly in the United States commercially. And, you know, I did a lot of uh, public company work. I did a lot of private equity, transactional work, drafting shareholder agreements, understanding, you know, what commercial contracts do to unlock value. Um, and, and actually, it was an incredibly valuable time. I met, made great friends, too at the law firm that I've known, you know, the rest of my life and but re- really learned that frankly I did not want to be a lawyer the rest of my life. That's probably the most important thing I learned uh, in that time. But uh, the Hogan's a great firm and you know, it's the largest firm in Washington DC and you know, we served every kind of institution, telecommunications companies, hotel companies, you know, you know, biotech companies and so I you know, got to learn the business side uh, while I was supporting them on all their transactions and it was it was, it was not fun, but it was a great learning experience. So at what point does it become clear that the uh, law is not for you? I would say it's a good question. Probably about two, two, two and a half years in, I was like, uh, you know, my dad was still practicing. He was a, a prominent D.C. litigator. I did not do litigation precisely because I saw his experience being a litigator and how tough that was. And, I, you know, about two years in, I started to think, you know what, I'd like to, to do something else. And I didn't start actively looking for a job at that point, but I was also not turning away, uh, you know, opportunities. Now, this was right at the peak of the, the 2000.com uh 
boom. I mean, it was incredible. I had friends who were two years out of law school getting general counsel jobs at public companies that, you know, had all they had to have is a dot com after their name and they were raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I, I saw people starting to leave the law for commercial opportunities more systematically than I had anticipated when I was going through law school uh, and started to get a little itchy about doing that and doing something else. Uh, and then I literally got an opportunity of nowhere to go into the federal government. And, you know, growing up in the D.C. area, the federal government is like the biggest, biggest company in town. Um, and so, you know, I, I really jumped at it. I said, this is a policy job, gets me outside the law into an arena of transportation that I knew very little about, but was really excited about. So. That's amazing. So now. In this case, you know, like, how do you stumble across transportation? Because obviously transportation, you know, has been pivotal, you know, for you and, and your career. So how did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, it's 22 years now I've been in transportation. And basically there's a, a friend of a friend uh, had got appointed to a job to be the assistant secretary for transportation policy uh, when the Bush administration came in in 2000, you know, 2001. And, you know, we just started talking about what an opportunity could look like. He had a mandate to build a team uh, in the policy office, which has oversight for everything that happens at the department, uh, regulations, funding, policy, you know, programs, everything the department does runs through the policy office in some form. And he, he just said, hey, why don't you join me as a special assistant, see if you like it, uh, do it for a couple of years, and, you know, you can do something else if you don't like it. And I, you know, talked to, talk to my wife, and we were both, we were both law firm associates. So uh, financially, let's just say this was not the most brilliant decision of my life to, uh, to we, we had a, we had a baby and then left, we both left the law. Uh, she, she took care of the baby and I uh, went into a, a government job. So we, uh, let's just say we're not doing well financially for a while, but I, I fell in love with transportation over the next seven years. So obviously, you know, like that's a, something that you were doing then, you know, exploring and experiencing transportation in every single direction that you can think of, you know, whether it's sea or air or, or rail or road, you know, whatever that is. No? But in this case, after seven years, then there was like a little of a shift there going more from the public to the private, you know, with McKinsey. So what what triggered that? Yeah. So, look, one of the biggest things we did at the department I was there and, you know, I led a team of folks working on these activities was really explore the degree to which the private sector could participate more systematically in infrastructure. You know, we'd seen examples from Europe and South America and Asia where the private sector has had funded and financed infrastructure. The United States had a very different model. We had a top-down model where the federal government funded all of the interstate system coming out of World War II, just rained money down on the states and paid for it and basically said, let's build a bunch of, you know, free, free roads. The problem with that is it, it's good to get it built, but not to sustain it in my modernize it. And so what we concluded is the United States didn't have a transportation policy to modernize our infrastructure. And that, that was what I focused on is most intensely. I you know, obviously had other responsibilities, but I was most excited about the idea of bringing the private sector and frankly, bringing technology into an area that was extremely sleepy and just not, not a lot of innovation happening, uh, roads, transit systems, airports. Uh, the U.S. You know, was ranking very low among uh, developed countries in, in all those categories. And you know, even though we had the biggest systems in the world, we had some of the least, poor, you know, most poorly performing. So McKinsey, the, the McKinsey connection was kind of perfect for where my brain was at that time, which was to really drive innovation into our, you know, our transportation systems in, in every dimension. And McKinsey, that's kind of what McKinsey does. And so I connected with a number of their partners. The head of the firm actually called me and said, hey, we're going to launch an infrastructure practice. Uh, Dominic Barton's his name. And he was in Shanghai. And he said, we're, we're going all in on infrastructure as a company. I did not know a lot about McKinsey. They had interviewed me 
uh, about an assignment I believe they were doing for an infrastructure bank in South America. And I was, you know, on the credit council, basically helping run the infrastructure bank for the United States at the time. So I just met them through that. And we said, you know, we just clicked. And I said, this is a great platform uh, to go out and basically transform infrastructure as a consultant. Uh, and so we launched that and I spent the next 10 years running around the world uh, doing that, basically. So obviously on the consulting side, I'm sure that uh, you learned quite a few things when it comes to problem solving. So what, what, did, what did you learn on the problem solving side? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible training at McKinsey, the, just the, the way to structure a problem, the way to effectively analyze and break it down, to simplify it for customers and then to communicate, uh, you know, solutions and ideas. That, that basic template that McKinsey uses, to me, is still the best way to solve any problem. Uh, obviously, McKinsey gets criticized because they're not ultimately the ones always directly implementing or solving the problem, but the structure and approach and processes used in McKinsey, I think, are the best in the world. So I learned all that. I trained under some of the best partners at McKinsey uh, on how to do that. They, they did not cut me any breaks. They said, come in and you know do, do the stuff from the beginning, even though I, you know, I was the number three ranking transportation official in the United States when I left. And they you know, they came in and said, all right, you're an associate at McKinsey, basically. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, so I, I did that for a, a year or two. And then they recognized me. I'm a partner. And then obviously helped lead the practice. And, you know, I was doing an amazing amount of cool stuff. I ended my career there actually helping, helping lead the work in Puerto Rico. Uh, coming out of the bankruptcy of Puerto Rico. So just, you know, everything that you could think of in terms of cool problems I got to work on uh, in my time. And I, I just got trained on the processes and systems that are used to break down problems. And I, I started to realize about eight years in Alejandro that I wanted to employ those techniques and practices in, in my own company or in, in a leadership role inside of a company. So then how did that uh, happen when when you finally see the opportunity coming from a you know, conversation that you had with a private equity firm. Yeah, so I got I got called. I was actually in Puerto Rico, uh, sitting having breakfast in the hotel in Puerto Rico, uh, about to do some work with the the oversight board down there. And uh, I got a call from a headhunter at Spencer Store who said, "Hey, you know, we're calling on behalf of a private equity fund in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, called SDP. Uh, they own a toll road in Austin, Texas, and they're looking for a CEO." And I was like, "Really?" And I I knew the road. I actually was involved in the initial. Uh, transaction around the road and knew about it, you know, when I was in the government and all that. And so, you know, it was a really interesting experience that they were offering to go run, run a road that had actually suffered serious financial distress. The traffic forecast was way, they, let's just say they wildly overestimated the amount of traffic on the road. It's a huge greenfield development project outside Austin, right near the Tesla Gigafactory, by the way. That's that's where the road is. Uh, so it's a it's a phenomenal growth area of the country. And at the time, I was like, this could be a, this could be really exciting. Um, you know, it's a small company. It's a good good way to start my CEO tenure is with a small company uh, and with a private equity firm that's very hands on. And that's what SCP was. SCP had relationships with McKinsey before, and so I. Heard, I'd heard good things about them through that. And uh, I just jumped into it. I commuted uh, from D.C. to Austin every week, which was tougher than I was expected, uh, given that I was doing a lot of travel with McKinsey. It's very different to just go to one place all the time. Uh, but I did it. And then, and then COVID hit and kind of the world changes, you know. So then, so then what happened when COVID hit? So when COVID hit, basically, obviously, we all went, everyone went remote. I was living in D.C. area, you know, running a toll road from my basement in Austin, Texas. And, uh, you know, was really starting to think that maybe, 
maybe getting someone down there would be better for the company. And at that exact moment that I was starting to wrestle with my future at the company, and we, no one knew, this, you know, this is spring of 2020, no one knew how long COVID was going to last. And so we were, you know, potentially looking at a year to two years of this kind of arrangement. And it felt important to me that someone, we have someone down there physically, at, you know, with the company as the, as the transition happened, hopefully out of COVID. And I got approached at that exact moment uh, by Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, uh, both Brian Barlow and Jonathan Weiner, uh, approached me uh, about you know, starting this thing called Cavenue. And uh, I started to think about it. And I, it dawned on me that I had done a project inside McKinsey, we called it a recently a knowledge project on what uh, basically a business model for something that we now call Cavenue. And I had done it about two years earlier, uh, along with some other colleagues around the need for infrastructure to s- facilitate uh, autonomous and advanced vehicles. And we did a whole project on it. And I was like, oh, this, this is our project. I didn't even think about this as a company. I thought about this as an idea. And uh, they, they had already they had already got the idea uh, and so i was i was excited to join so then what happened next so then you know they capitalized the company you know with a you know relatively small amount of money i was employee number one and ceo co-founder on september 1st of 2020 joined um i stayed on and transitioned over to the chairman role at, at, at my old toll road and so that worked out great and maintained good relationships there everybody was happy with the, the way it went down i think and then we just started building the company uh, we had an initial, unlike most startups, we actually had an initial project already in the state of Michigan. Uh, this is our crown jewel project right now to basically turn Interstate 94 between Detroit and Ann Arbor into the first truly automated road in the world. Uh, that project was underway. So we built a team in Michigan, and then we started to you know, significantly try to hire engineers as fast as we could because this was a, a digital challenge, a systems engineering challenge, as well as a project challenge. And what what is an automated road? What does that look like? Yeah, so basically it's an integrated set of hardware on the road, so called, you know, cameras, radar, edge compute capabilities. Uh, you know, we got, you know, all kinds of sensors on a pole out there. Our business model is about every 200 meters, seeing everything. So we, you know, observe everything that's happening on the road, provide a set of inferences through this digital twin or back-end software capability to crank out what's actually happening and then provide ultimately information directly to the vehicles so they can see beyond what their line of sight is. So the smartest vehicles in the world today can only see what they can see. Uh, they can't see around the curve. They can't see a mile ahead. They can't see five miles ahead. And I think that lack of information is causes complexity challenges for these vehicles. So we want to effectively support that. But it's not enough to do that in our view. You also actually have to operate the road every day. And that includes, you know, basic stuff like painting, striping, signage, debris removal, all the stuff that gums up the ability of an AV advanced vehicle system to work effectively. We think you've got to solve all of those problems. Um, and I think that's that's basically the company's mission is to be an integrated partner to government to solve the core set of problems that cause these vehicles to disengage from their, their advanced vehicle systems. And how do you guys make money? How do we make money? So look, there's basically three different ways. One is a traditional toll road uh, concept. So just, you know, pay per use. Uh, another way is a subscription service uh, where we basically are selling the data feed uh, in order to you know effectively recover all the costs of putting putting the hardware and software up. And then the third would be just a, a payment from government, you know, call it an availability or performance payment. So government says, hey, we want to see these four outcomes from our roadway and we'll pay you tied to you achieving those outcomes. Under all those revenue models, though, we want a long-term relationship. This is not a, we're not a software vendor, you know, selling a license or something like that. We want a, you know, 30, 50, 75 year relationship. Uh, And we've seen those models already work quite well. So this is why my career at DOT 
we effectively launched this business in the United States. You know, we, as I said, we'd seen it already in like South America and in Asia and in Europe, but we launched it in the United States along with some really pioneering companies. And so it's just a next generation version of that business model. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, obviously, in this case, talking about the business model, I mean, you're combining software, hardware, and then also building the project. So sounds like a challenge. So how, how do you guys find the balance between those three? You know, yeah, things? it's been the single most uh, exciting and difficult thing to do is to build a company that's both solving projects in the real world and also obviously building a technology platform that's scalable, independent of those. But we, in order for our solution to work, we've got to get our hands dirty, so to speak, in the real world. We've got to build stuff. We've got to operate it. We've got to maintain it. And that's two completely different cultures. It's funny. I mean, I, we've hired many people out of Silicon Valley and the engineering side, you know, software, leading software engineers, leading hardware engineers. And these, you know, the vocabulary of their world is completely different than the vocabulary of people who build and operate roadways. Uh, so honestly, it's been the it's fun sometimes when we have these disconnects around what 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 are we doing and what do we need to do to build a project, uh, and then the you know the project team is out there you know saying a bunch of things about software that they don't understand, and so you know there's you know the sales function is is much more complicated because we're you know we're not just pitching hey we'll build a road we're pitching we're gonna build a smart road with a feature set that no one's ever built before in the real world. So that's been the biggest uh, challenge is trying to integrate these different cultures and vocabularies and frankly ways of working. I mean, this is one good thing about McKinsey is I got to work with so many different kinds of companies that worked very differently. It's incredible how different engineers, software engineers work, even from project development people. It's like, you know, like I said, they might as well just be two different species of, of humans. So. And how much capital have you guys raised to date, Tyler? So we raised $130 million in our A round. Um, and we, you know, we had a very strategic focus. Uh, our, you know, our owner, majority owner, Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, who was built basically to solve these kinds of problems I just described, these really complex integration of tech and real world. That's their that's their platform mission. And that we're obviously the transportation 
manifestation of that. So we raised a lot of money from them. We raised a lot of money from Ford Motor Company, who's been a tremendous technology partner of ours. They're building advanced driving systems that we're working with them on there. Landstar, which is one of the largest trucking companies in the United States. So we, we think trucking is obviously going to be one of the earliest use cases for advanced vehicles. And then a very large uh, global toll road operator called Global Via. Um, so we wanted somebody who's run roads, somebody who's doing advanced tech on vehicles and in trucks, and then obviously somebody with the vision like SIP has to integrate the, this, this, the whole world around this. So it was a very strategic raise. Uh, one of the largest ARAM raises uh, in 21. I think we were top 5% uh, in terms of you know raise. Uh, very large valuation as well because we see there's huge potential in these projects. You win two or three large road deals, Alejandro, and you know, you've know you got you know multi-billion dollar enterprise already. So. Wow. I mean, yeah, because I mean, you were alluding to it. I mean, it's a hell of a raise and I don't... Here, you know, the Series A is being, you know, that big. So how you how did you go about justifying the amount and then also justifying the valuation? Because that's obviously yeah. not normal numbers. No, it's look, it's capital intensive, right? So we're putting, you know, we're like I said, we we there are many companies in the intelligent transportation space that are selling, you know, a software solution in effect, and they're kind of hardware agnostic. We 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 don't believe that's sufficient because we don't think that these vehicles ultimately will function as optimally as they could without a full view of what's going on on the roadway at all times. So we, we call ourselves like a super sensor. So the the hardware requirements are real, uh, and that means we got to get out there and put put the hardware in the road, and that costs money, right? And so I think that you know we needed to raise enough capital to be able to do deployments of that hardware and then obviously we've got a you know a large software platform we're building with a lot of cloud costs associated with that and you know we've got a great provider uh, in partnership with GCP with Google Cloud as well and so we've you know we've really built all of the core elements you need with this first fundraise. Now it's about project execution. And what's exciting about the company is we can become a sourcing platform for large-scale project investments. So obviously, 130 million is not sufficient to build two, three billion dollars of roadways, but there's so much capital out there looking to do that that we effectively can become a bridge to that capital, including SIP itself as, as an investor in these projects. So it's a it's a very unique platform. I mean, there are analogies in real estate and other, you know, in the renewable space where folks are out there sourcing projects for large-scale project investors. So, but we needed enough money to build the core platform. And that's why we went, went as big as we did. And the valuation is tied to just the incredible promise. I mean, this, the, the, the U.S. road system, frankly, any road system in any country is actually the most valuable asset uh, network utility there is. Uh, I mean, it's more valuable in many ways, electricity grid. It's, it's So there's tracked value there. It's not a revenue generating asset other than toll roads, uh, but those toll roads themselves get, get incredible valuation. So, you know, there've been two transactions done in the U.S. in the last four years, uh, privatization deals, 40 to 50 times multiples you're getting on those deals and the operating margins for roadways are typically 75 or 80 percent so it's a incredible asset class and it's the reason why these huge investors around the world are looking at roads they just hadn't looked at technology on roads yet and that's what we're doing so so as we're talking about people here how has it been to to um really build uh operation where the employees are fully remote yeah it's that was a big challenge right so we have our engineering team has a hub in so out in Mountain View, uh, we've got a huge office in Detroit, uh, and we've got our corporate office in D.C. where I am. But then we've got, you know, probably, you know, 10 other locations. It's It was a challenge. Thing. I mean, obviously, we use a lot of Google Meets and, and Zoom and Teams, uh, you know, and it, it was exhausting for folks to just be on these calls all day. It's been great to finally be able to collaborate again, but recruiting 
engineering talent in a remote environment was very tough. Now, they, a lot of the engineers want to work remotely, but finding that talent remotely can be can be a bit of a challenge. And recruiting them into a new business like this. So imagine if you're a software engineer sitting in Silicon Valley and you worked at you know Waymo or Apple or wherever you worked, and somebody comes to you with a business model like I'm describing. It's you need to understand it to, to make a career bet. You need to say, well, I'm not I'm not from the highway world. I understand project finance. I understand how you commercialize this. But these engineers want that confidence that they're going into a business with a sound business model. And I think that doing recruiting people remotely and convincing them of this business model was it took a lot of work. So I, I ended up having to do a lot of recruiting in person. We brought in a great uh, head of people who frankly transformed our recruiting function. Uh, and that, that was our biggest challenge after year one is getting getting the engineering talent. So obviously to get talent, to get investment, you know, it's all about people and people are all about vision. So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Cavenue is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, look, by the way, there's a General Motors video of this from the 1956 World's Fair of uh, what a smart roadway looks like. But it's, you know, it's the the it's the largest road systems in the U.S. states and around the world effectively operating digitally with full understanding of what's going on on the roadway at all times. So the road operator knows what's going on. The car knows what's going on. Drivers can relax uh, to the extent they're in the car. They can drive hands off, eyes off. Trucks can run autonomously through hundreds and hundreds of miles of roadway to ship products much more cheaply. And we frankly see a massive reduction in fatalities. Um, right now, you know, so the efficiency side is incredible, but the safety side is a, is a true crisis. I mean, we're still losing over 40,000 people a year on U.S. roadways. Other countries experience similar problems. Uh, this is solvable. I used to always say when I was in government that transportation is the easiest big problem to solve. But it does require more systematic interventions of technology. And so I, I envision, uh, you know, smart roadways end to end. I get in my car, I go to my office in Arlington, 10 miles away, and I'm sitting there reading an article, uh, not paying attention to the wheel, hopefully, and letting the car do, do the work. That's a vision that I think is much more achievable in the next five years than people realize. But it does require government and the private sector to work together in ways that they never have, to be honest with you. I mean, the interstate system today in the U.S. looks the way it does because General Motors and Ford, you know, basically said we need a platform for our emerging products. We're making cool cars, big cars, fast cars, and the road system you got here doesn't work for that. So, so we're obviously talking here about the future, you know, and it sounds like a really beautiful future. But I want to talk about the past, but talk about the past with a lens of reflection. So let's say I was to put you into a time machine. And I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment that you were in McKinsey, you know, hey, you know, like I really want to do something on my own eventually, jump to the operator side. Let's say you were able to have a chat with that younger Tyler and give that younger Tyler one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? That's a great question. Um, I, I focus on the people. I mean, it's what you said. Uh, I mean, the, you know, McKinsey, we used to talk about performance and health as the two prongs of, of successful enterprises. And honestly, the health is more important than anything. I mean, the, the people are what matters, uh, the people believing in the mission and the people frankly having the tools and resources. So, you know, over-focus on people would be the advice I would give. Uh, over-focus on making sure that people have clarity around what they're doing every day and, and have the tools to, to succeed. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't lead with a negative perspective, I'm very much a positive leader. I believe in you know empowering and delegating to the extent we can, and I want our team to feel that way. But I, you know, you can get trapped in the day to day a lot and lose focus on what really matters, which is are your people 
able to be successful. It's as simple as that. Uh, every other piece of advice is all about, you know, that's like the necessary condition for everything else to work. Uh, and I've seen it. I've seen periods with our, even in our company in the last three years where we've had cultural challenges. We've had, you know, issues with different people that we've had to manage. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, every, everyone's trying to do their best uh, and you have to assume the best intentions, but just over-focus on people is my biggest advice. I love it. So, Tyler, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, you can send an email at tyler at cabinet.com. I'm happy to, to receive anything. Uh, I, uh, you know, I love, love talking to folks. I love, I love interacting with the technology sector because it's just so much, so many incredibly brilliant people doing, you know, incredibly cool things. And uh, U.S. technology sector, I think, is really going through a fascinating evolution right now of, its, of itself. And so I kind of love being part of that conversation. So I, uh, I, I talk, that's, that'll be other advice is, uh, Take, take calls and listen. Uh, you know, if I had not had the mindset through these inflection points to, to take the call and listen to the opportunity, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting where I am. So uh, happy to have anybody call me and reach out. I love that one. Hey, Tyler, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks, Alejandro. It's been great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.